You may be seated. As we continue in worship, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11 will continue, uh, will continue our series. Um, we're just going to give that a second to resolve itself. Okay, that sounds better. Um, we'll continue our series on the, the markings of the church, which we find a definition of church in Acts chapter 2, that the church is that which is marked by devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those four things define the church. And so this will be our last week as we focus on fellowship specifically, though they're all kind of interrelated. And then we'll move towards the breaking of the bread and towards prayer. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus. And there's lots to be said about this text, and it's probably for many of us not the first time that we've heard a sermon on one of the temptation accounts. In Mark, it's just two sentences. Um, In Matthew and Luke, it's a bit longer. And we'll come back to this again probably um, during during Lent in those seasons where we anticipate um, following Jesus in a certain way for a certain season. But today... As we focus on the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, we focus our attention on what does this mean for our fellowship? What do we learn about who Jesus is and how Jesus was? And how do we seek to best and most faithfully emulate Jesus? In in the song that we just sang, we asked for Jesus to be our vision And so our vision of fellowship within the church cannot be based on just our preferences or what we enjoy, but Christ as our vision to teach us and nurture us into what true Christian fellowship is. And we find in the temptations the ways where we can be led astray to make our fellowship something else. So as we come before God's Word, as we read it, as we study it together, As we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, I will lead us in a prayer of invocation or a prayer where um, we essentially are asking the Holy Spirit to tune our hearts into the Word. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that you be our vision. Speak to us through your Word that our fellowship may have you at its center. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may take one step closer to you in what we say, think, and do. Strengthen us by your presence that our fellowship together might uphold your name with honor and reverence and that we may do so in gratitude and joy. For you, Jesus our Lord, are our vision for this day and for the days to come. Speak, O Lord, that you may be our vision. Amen. 
Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And at the end of the reading of God's word, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond, if you feel grateful, with the phrase, thanks be to God. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will, lift up, they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's so much happening um, in, in this short 11 verses. You could, you could write a whole sermon or, or maybe even a book on just the high and low places, the way that the devil is always trying to bring Jesus to a, a seemingly high place. And yet we find that through most of Jesus' ministry, he sp- spends it in the low places. If you look at a map of the ancient Near East and track where Jesus went, he didn't always go to the highest, biggest, and best cities. He was from a lower place. He spent time in lower places with people whose status were also lower. You could spend a lot of time on just the, the simplicity of the devil's temptation. That what, it, what does it mean? That the devil insinuates that he has something to offer Jesus. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a um, New England preacher back in the times of the revivalist movement. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a very lengthy treaty on cosmic dominion just off of that single verse. And yet, that is definitely my son, I hear. Um, uh, (laughs) And yet, there are still some things we can focus on today knowing that there's always more. And that, once again, is why the church defines itself according to the apostles' teaching, because there are always more depth and riches to dig into. But when we pay attention to the simple fact that the devil actually knows the Bible pretty well, that the devil has even memorized a couple of verses, and that Jesus has also learned his Bible really well, 
and has also memorized a few verses. In fact, Jesus pulls all of the scripture from two chapters of Deuteronomy, almost to make us wonder if if that was Jesus' morning devotions, was that few chapters from Deuteronomy that prepared him and led him to be ready to respond to the devil, to Satan, to the accuser, to the liar. Where Jesus and the devil both have some verses that they can bring to mind, that they carry with them in their minds and hearts, certain knowledge. What is different is that Jesus has God's priorities and principles in his heart, and the devil does not. The devil has knowledge that is meant for manipulation, for shaming, for tempting. The first one is simple and basic. It's hunger. Forty days and forty nights of no food. I don't know about you. I can get a little bit hungry after 40 minutes with no food. The candy bar Snickers has tailored their advertising around that simple reality that when you haven't had enough to eat recently, you are not yourself. Hungry? Grab a Snickers. You're not you when you're hungry. And it's interesting to wonder, Jesus is very hungry. Will he prove Snickers wrong that he can still be himself even when he's hungry? But think about what hunger does. You can't pay attention to anything else when you're hungry or when you're thirsty because that one thing, that one thing on your mind is clouding your judgment, preventing you from thinking about anything else because you have a need that needs to be attended to before you can really think any further or wider than that. Hunger is a real thing. And maybe it's not always physical hunger But we can identify with different ways that there's that one thing on our mind, that one conversation that we had or need to have, that one relationship, that one incident, the one thing that can cloud our judgment and focus us so much that we can't think about anything else. We get tunnel visioned. Forty days and forty nights of fasting would tunnel vision us to attune to our stomach and not much else. And maybe... You think if you just had a bite to eat, just just a quick snack, you'd think more clearly for the rest of the time. But, but even that is a trap in and of itself. Maybe just a Snickers bar, maybe just, maybe just a slice of bread. And what the devil tempts Jesus with in the first temptation, turning stones into bread, that miracle is really not out of the question by any means. It is not unlike God's character to provide food for hungry people by miraculous intervention or through the sending of either ravens or the church. Making bread appear, making gluten-free bread appear, is not out of the question. Just one loaf of fresh bread out of one small stone I don't really have a sweet tooth. I have a carb tooth. And so when I think about being hungry and the smell of fresh bread, I don't think there's any chance I would stand of, with, of withholding against temptation. When our house smells like fresh bread, I can't think about anything else even if I wasn't hungry. And yet Jesus, 
well aware of his physical body, stays centered and responds that quite simply his primary hunger, his primary appetite is for the word of God. And in this way, we learn a lesson about our own fellowship, that we need the word and that it is primary among all of our other appetites or hungers. We need the word, the living word. In a few weeks, Pastor Audrey will preach more on this as we unpack in the breaking of the bread. What does it mean when Jesus says that that he is the bread of life? For our fellowship, for all of the food that we enjoy making and sharing with one another, for the Wednesday nights and the potlucks and the Ottawa County Fair booth and the pies made in a convection oven, for all of these things that we enjoy so much of the food that we do need to nourish our bodies, it is good to remember from the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 that in our fellowship we're not actually here primarily to gather a banquet for ourselves. We are here primarily to feed our souls with God's word and to nourish our fellowship with Christ's living presence. The good food that we share, the amazing culinary skills that that exist in this group of people that we call North Holland, that is a bonus byproduct. Thanks be to God for it. But it is a bonus. Because the primary is still every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even if we could turn stones into bread, that's not what we're after first and foremost. In church and in the home, Christian fellowship is defined by including word as central. And I think there's something to be remembered that that Jesus was not in church when this happened. This didn't happen when he was in some holy place. He was just in the desert, wherever the Spirit led him to. We could say more about the fact that it was the Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted in the first place. But it's also at home. It might be something that Jesus learned in synagogue, but it also would be simply the recitation of Scripture. Growing up with that as a central part of Jesus' life would put the Word in his mind and in his heart. And I wonder if when we get together with other people, not just here, but also in the home, because who we are at church and who we are at home and who we are at work should all be the same congruent person. There shouldn't be masks that we're flipping on and off depending on where we are. We are the same person no matter where we are. How much does the word have centrality in our own homes? I wonder if when we get together, how often do we just start with the scripture reading? Or does that seem almost like too formal or like it's, it's kind of infringing on our purpose of gathering together? Does it feel awkward or uncomfortable? Or do we just maybe not know what to start or what to read? But I would say there are those homes where you go and you know there's going to be devotions before the meal. There's going to be a quick reading. Because there is a centrality to the word that precedes all other appetites. And if we want to grow into this practice of making the word central at home, what to do, how to read, would we do that with guests over? I would offer this. If it really matters to you, 
if it really matters to you that, that the word is central, then you will find a way and you can always ask someone for help. You could ask a pastor or elder, how do I do this? How do I get some practice so it's not as awkward or uncomfortable? Our fellowship has a distinct focus on the apostles' teaching. And that comes even before food, the reading of Scripture. This matters so much. Because when we don't devote ourselves to Scripture, to this apostles' teaching that we talk about, we are more likely to be led astray when we are tempted. And a good example of where Jesus got it right, but where the devil got it wrong, is in the second temptation. The second temptation, in some ways, could be a personal safety temptation. The devil took him to the holy city, verse 5, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. That would be really, really high. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Doesn't it sound like he's tempting a fool here? Like, does the devil really think that Jesus is that dumb? This is like, this is like, no offense to my own self, but like, this is like the teenage version of temptation. Hey, I bet you can't jump off the roof and not get hurt. (laughs) Bet you're right. Oh, mothers of teenage boys are chuckling and cringing. But the cunning of the trap is not in the obvious of like, no, you don't jump off roofs and say, hey, I won't get hurt. I can jump out of a six-story building. That's not what this is. The cunning of the trap is in making it sound like if Jesus doesn't jump, then Jesus doesn't trust God. And if he doesn't trust God, can he really have been sent by God the Father into the world? The devil takes the approach of Do whatever you want. It'll be fine. Didn't God say he was watching over you? Because if you don't do this, well, then maybe the Bible isn't so true after all. That's the cunning of the ask in the temptation. It would be obvious to say, no, I don't jump off rooftops. It would be more of a temptation if you thought that God's credibility was at stake. And your credibility of faith in God was at stake. Jesus dismisses this temptation pretty easily. With a verse from Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because that's not how we prove faith in God. Now we can unpack stories like Gideon and the fleece and the ways in which we discern We could unpack in Malachi where it does say to put God to the test in terms of of bringing a tithe forward to, to see if God does not bless the community with abundance. We can go to all of those places, but when it comes to this instance of proving God by doing something stupid, Jesus says, no. The I can do whatever I want and God will protect me is actually the devil's talking point. It is not of God. The devil's tempt comes from Psalm 91. I encourage you just to simply read the entire psalm and ask yourself if the way the devil pitches this idea to Jesus about jumping off the roof actually fits with the whole of Psalm 91, a psalm in which the last word is salvation, a psalm that talks about treading on lions and cobras. First of all, cobras No thank you. Not even going to go there. 
But that's why there are snake-handling churches, because they're proving that they can put their hand in a poisonous snake pit and not get bit, and that that's how they prove their faith in God. It sounds gross and ridiculous and not biblical when we read Scripture the way Jesus showed us how to read Scripture. Daniel was protected from the lions in the lion's den. But he didn't show up in court and say, I believe in God, throw me in the lion's den, please. He was put in a situation that was hopeless, and God delivered him with hope. In our fellowship, we are not here to test God as if God has something to prove. Because our fellowship is already based on knowing that God's covenant promises are true that they have been tested, and that the test of God's love for us, the advantage we have even over Jesus in this moment, is that our test of God's promises and God's love and faithfulness and salvation were already met when Jesus paid the price for our sins upon the cross. That the test of God's love, if God would die for us, that test has already been passed 2,000 years ago. Our fellowship is to remember and to refresh ourselves in God's covenant promises that have already been tested, that have already demonstrated that God has great love for us. And our faith in God is not based on personal safety. If it is, then why were all the disciples martyred? And why are we as Christians not exempt from disease or cancer or aneurysms or car accidents. We all will be tested too, in different ways, at different times, and in different seasons. And in those moments of being tested, we remember to lean on God and not on our own strength. And in those moments of temptation, we come forward again to the apostles' teaching. And when we do so, we come back to Scripture. And in those moments, we say, Speak to me, O God. That we find strength in the words and the principle of the words, just as Jesus did when he was tempted after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness. We come back to Scripture. Not because God needs to be tested, but because we remember that God's love for us has already been tested and that the price has been paid. It brings us to the third temptation. Once again, bringing Jesus to a high place, to to a mountain. The, The devil offers before Jesus as if he has something to offer. And actually, Luke's account of the temptation story sheds a little bit more light on that. But the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said, all of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. All of this I will give you. All of the attention, all of the popularity, all of the praise, all of the satisfaction of of being surrounded by people who like you. All of the temptation to, to be trendy to put popularity before principle. 
But Jesus responds with words that focus on being timeless over trendy. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It won't make you more popular. It won't gain you control of more territory or power in an earthly sense because Jesus has a lot of teaching that he starts doing right after this to help us understand the type of kingdom and what type of power and glory and dominion Jesus offers in his kingdom. The idea of gaining so much control and territory and popularity is very appealing. And even in this moment in the church in the U.S., we're coming to reckon with how often seeking popularity and numbers backfires. And the higher the leader stands, oh, how much harder they might fall. The devil's ask is simple. Bow down to me, and all of the people who like me will like you. But if you don't, they're going to hate you, and I'll make sure of it. But submitting to the devil comes with a cost. Giving up on your convictions comes with a cost. Worshiping God and serving God alone, well, that cost has already been paid. And in this way, Jesus responds quite simply and firmly, Away from me, Satan. Essentially, there is no room for you here. Because even if you think you have something to offer, it does not compare with what the kingdom of God has to offer. Our fellowship, when we think about this third temptation, is a reminder that we are not in it for ourselves. Though we do once again benefit we, we benefit from being connected, from being in relationship with one another. We benefit tremendously from having friends and church family that we can count on in times of need. We benefit from having people who take care of us and show up with meals when, when something big happens in our life, whether that be a tragedy or whether that be the birth of a new child and we're all just a little bit too tired to think about food after 40 nights of no sleeping, perhaps. We benefit from our fellowship. But it's not about the gains. It's about the giving up. It is about relinquishing some of the control that we thought we had with clenched fists, with opening our hands up to God and finding that we never had control in the first place. We just had a lot of anxiety. When we give up control to God, when we do that, we yield. We are still empowered. We are still sent. But we're not in it for ourselves at that point. And we won't gain power or control in the ways that the devil sees power and control. Our fellowship is one not of gaining control over the world, but over self-control a fruit of the Spirit. And our offerings are given over to God as a practice of relinquishing our control and to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Every word 
that comes from the mouth of God is what we are meant to live on and live into. Friends, in our fellowship, may we glorify God. May we do so with a devotion to the apostles' teaching, with remembering that the cost of our salvation is a price that's already been paid, that God has nothing to prove to us, and that we have nothing to prove on God's account, and that the centrality of the word in our life will make all of the difference in what we say and think and do if we read Scripture not the way the devil twisted it, but the way Jesus modeled reading it for us and to us. Glorify God in your fellowship. This day, in this place, and in every day, in every place where you gather together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, Pastor Audrey is going to lead us in congregational and closing prayer. Let's pray together, friends. Come, Holy Spirit, renew us. Send the wind and flame of your transforming life to lift up the church today. Give us wisdom and faith that we may know the great hope to which we are called. Giver of life, sustain your creation. Confront us with our greedy consumptions of your gifts. Call us forth into new harmonies of care for all who live and breathe and have their being. Spirit of truth, set us free to emerge as the children of God. Open our ears that we may hear the weeping of the world. Open our mouths that we may be a voice for the voiceless. Open our eyes that we may see your vision of peace and justice. Make us alive with the courage and faith of your prophetic truth. Spirit of unity, reconcile your people. Give us the wisdom to hold to what we need to, to be your church. Give us the grace to lay down those things that we can do without. Give us a vision of your breadth and length and height to challenge our smallness of heart and bring us humbly together. Holy Spirit, transform us and sanctify us as we take up this task in your name. Lord God, may we be a wise congregation in which the proclamation of the gospel leads to both confession and praise, both repentance and a commitment to service, both compassion and a passion for justice, both personal and communal actions, both new obedience and profound gratitude. Lord God, may our congregation testify to the goodness of God and our community, expressing the faith of the whole church that unites us with believers across cultures and centuries. May our congregation have the stamina and drive to uplift the oppressed and powerless among us. May we speak only what is true as we pursue what is true, noble, and right. All of this we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. As we go from this place, 
May Christ be your vision in all that you say and think and do. Whenever we are tempted, may we lean on those promises that have already been tested and found to be true, a solid rock on which we can stand. As we go, we go not with just admonishment or uh, conviction. We do go with those things, as Pastor Audrey prayed. We also go with what was also prayed for and promised to us. We go with joy and gratitude, with God's blessing upon us and God's encouragement to us. And so hear these tested and true words of God's blessing for all of God's people, wherever they may be. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen.